Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. I met today's guest recently at a conference up in New York City, and I was thrilled that she was willing to come on the show today. Jean Kwok is the award-winning New York Times and international best-selling author of The Leftover Woman, Searching for Sylvie Lee, Girl in Translation, and Mambo in Chinatown. Her work has been published in 20 countries and is taught in schools across the world. She's one of 12 contemporary authors asked by the Agatha Christie estate to write an original authorized Miss Marple story. All of her novels are in development for film and television, and she divides her time between the Netherlands and New York City. So, Jean, thank you so much for being on the show today. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, Stephen. Now, I, um, I'm... Just impressed by the books that you've done and and all of the success that you've had. And so I thought I wanted to just kind of start by asking, was there someone in your life, maybe early on, who inspired you to either become a writer or who was a storyteller that um, maybe that impacted you or inspired you early on? You know, Steve, I am not a typical writer in that I was not one of those kids who was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to write my first book by the time I'm seven years old. And <laughs> my happy place is writing like I was a working class immigrant kid. We were incredibly poor. Mm. We lived in an apartment without central heating um, in New York City. And I worked in a clothing factory for much of my childhood. So like the idea of being a writer did not occur to me. I didn't see a real live writer until probably after I actually became a writer myself. <laughs> so I um, I didn't know that being a writer was a choice. I didn't know that like, you know, in A, B, C, D, like that that was one of the options to become a writer. I uh, My goal for most of my life was actually to get out of that clothing factory. Um, mm, wow. And so... I was really focused on getting a degree, getting a real job. And, um, you know, I was a physics major when I went to Harvard. And it was only when I was in college that I actually wrote a poem one night when I was um, trying to do a problem set. And I really felt like I'd laid an egg. I was just like, <laughs> what is this thing that I have written onto the page? But then I, I think I you know, I I always did love to read. I mean, reading was my passion and my love. Like I read from the time I learned to speak mm -hmm. English. Um, so I loved, loved, loved books, but didn't occur to me that anybody wrote them, let alone that I could, <laughs> could write them. Um, but then once that did occur to me, it was actually the only thing I wanted to do. Oh, wow. And from that moment on, I knew I wanted to be a writer. When I was little, I never thought of being a writer. And I, I always loved stories. Like my uncle would tell us stories whenever we would get together, you know, uh, for holidays. And so he would take my siblings and myself into a corner of the living room and he would say, I'm going to tell you a story. 
and get this look in his eye, you know, and he would tell us his stories and, and so campfire stories or ghost stories or whatever it was. But uh, I just fell in love with uh, writing and, and imagination stories, but kind of a little bit like you, like I never imagined I would be a writer or a storyteller until, you know, uh, later, uh, later, quite later on, quite a bit later on. Um, did you ever have like, um, so a lot of people who are writers have like a really active daydreaming imagination. Is that you like when you were working or whenever you were in school or were you more science-based? Like what you just mentioned, you sort of offhandedly mentioned, yeah, when I got my degree at Harvard and my physics degree, <laughs> so it's like, so, or was science kind of a thing for you? You know, that is such an excellent question. And I was a real math science kid growing up, like in high school. And I worked, you know, at Sloan Kettering when I was still a a high school student and stuff like that. But the truth is my real nature was extremely like spaced out and daydreamy. I was (laughs) always, always in trouble. I mean, as a Chinese girl, I was a complete failure because I was, you know, I stunk at making dumplings and cleaning (laughs) and all the things that Chinese daughters were supposed to be good at. And I was always kind of staring out the window, dreaming about the last book I read. So I, you are right in that mm-hmm. I definitely had the writer personality long before I knew what a writer was. Yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. I found out recently there is a term for people like us, who people who daydream a lot or are uh, have an overactive imagination. We are polyphiloprogenitive. That is our diagnosis. I, I don't know. It's just a word I came across. But I was like, I love the word. And I love that there is a word out there that means you have an overactive imagination. So I now tell people I'm polyphiloprogenitive. And, and like I'll say, I was recently diagnosed with a condition. They'll be like, oh, no. Um, no you know. And then I'm like, yeah, I'm polyphiloprogenitive. And they're like, they don't know what to say. They're like, it's that I'm sorry, you know, like they're bad. They feel bad. And then I'm like, oh, it just means I have no reactive imagination. So it's mean. Is it terminal? I know. Does it, did did that term come with any kind of advice or insight about, (laughs) you know, why we became like this or? um... I don't think so. I, I, I don't remember. I think I was actually reading through a book of, um, uh, it's like a small dictionary of unusual words. I was just fascinated by it. I don't know whatever happened to it. It was on my shelf and I was like, I'm going to read this book. It's all these amazing words, sort of like the um, dictionary of the strange and unusual or something like that. And when I stumbled across it, I was like, okay, cool. I know what I am now. I finally, <laughs> I finally found out. So, but uh but no, I mean, when I was a kid, you know, people, your teacher, my teachers would be like, oh, you have an overactive imagination. And like, I'm glad I don't have the opposite, like an underactive imagination. So yeah, I guess I'm happy to be that. So I think that's a very, very good point. It's true. I never <laughs> thought about that. That's right. It is. It would be terrible to have an underactive imagination, but then it would probably make you more suitable for doing things like working a normal nine to five job and <laughs> you know true. things like that, right? Kind of becoming an adult. I had a job when I was in high school um, where we would detassel corn. I think 
it was to control like how the corn would um, populate the area or whatever. I was up in Wisconsin and, and uh, so basically you would just walk along these rows of corn and take off the top tassel and then you would just do that. And it would affect the way that they would reproduce and so I, but I got bored. And so I wasn't very good at my job. It seems like it should be an easy job. You literally just walk along a row and pull off a tassel of corn or don't. That's it. But I would make all these adventures of like dragons chasing me through the corn and I would forget to take the tassels off or I'd walk down and they'd be like, where, like, what happened to you? Where were you? I was like, oh, I, I don't know. I was being chased or something. And I was like, I almost lost the mo- the easiest job literally that you can get as a teenager um, because I was, yeah, daydreaming too much. So. I I absolutely hear you. I think, you know, a lot of us are kind of ill-equipped for any type of normal job. You know, when I got out of college, I uh, I knew by then I wanted to be a writer. So I went back to New York City and I needed a day job um, mm. because I knew, you know, I if I got any kind of normal job, I would wind up in that career and I would never write another word. So I really, really wanted this job watering plants in corporate buildings, right? You, they got to hire people to water all those plants in office buildings. And it paid like $5 an hour. But I thought it would be a very peaceful, kind of meditative kind of job. So there I go, you know, to the interview, like clutching my Harvard diploma. And I'm like, you know, I really, really want this job watering plants. And the guy <laughs> looks at me and he's like, well, you know. It's not just watering plants. And I'm like, all right, well, what is it? You know, I'm ready. Like, what is it? And he's like, <laughs> you also got to pick off the dead leaves. And I'm like, all right, I have no problem. I'm going to pick off the dead leaves. I'm going to, like, be the best, like, leaf picker-upper. And he was like, we do not want you. So I did not get that job. What? He didn't nope, want you. I was, was rejected. Absolutely rejected. But you were too, I think, enthusiastic, and <laughs> I don't know. Well, also clearly incompetent with plants, which is also actually true. So oh my goodness, there funny. you go. Now, um, once you started on this pathway of writing um, and uh, and kind of pursuing that passion of yours, would you say that? Th- okay, so a lot of people talk about like a voice, like the narrative voice of a book or storytelling voice, whatever. Would you say that it took you a while to kind of find your voice for the stories and novels that you write, or did that kind of come naturally naturally to you from the start? I think that for me, my voice is a gift. You know, my voice is something I had really from the very beginning, and it's changed somewhat. I think I've become better at using it and kind of activating it so that I have it when I need to write. But I've I've always had my voice. I think what was very difficult for me was learning structure and craft Mm. and all the rest of writing. So I started as a poet. Um, And I wasn't even, you know, because I loved poetry and it was my specialization in college after I switched from physics. So um, I love and I still love poetry to to this day, but I you know, I wrote short poems, like poems that mm-hmm. were 10 lines, maybe. I mean, I wasn't one of these like pages of pages, lyric yeah. poems, like I would write short poetry. And then um, 
you know, I graduated, I went to New York, I didn't get the plant watering job. I wound up <laughs> working as a professional ballroom dancer in New York City for three years. Wow. I worked as a professional dancer, yes. And then um, I saw one of my professors um, at a reading. It was Professor Helen Vendler, who's a major poetry critic and a very brilliant woman. And she asked, said, what are you doing, Jean? I told her and she said, my dear, she said, you must return to the flock. And I thought, oh, God, she's right. Like, what am I doing? Like dancing all day long and writing two hours a night when I'm exhausted. Like, I really actually need to go back to school. So wow. I went to Columbia uh, to get my MFA in fiction. And when I was applying for graduate schools and writing, you know, I had, you know, I'd written poetry. I'd written some short narrative kind of short story, pre-short story forms. And it just became clear that people reacted to those much more powerfully than they did to the poetry. So I got in for fiction. So I went to Columbia in fiction and I had to learn to go from a couple of lines to let's say 10, 20 pages. But for me, it was hard even yeah. to get to 20 pages um, in a short story landed an agent when I was still a grad student and it was very, very clear that I needed to write a novel. Like mm. that, that had to be the inevitable next yeah. stage of my career. And it was like a novel, oh my God, like 400 pages. And that was just a huge challenge um, because a voice mm. is not enough. I mean, a voice is great. I. I think sometimes that a voice is something that you're more stuck with than something that you develop or, you know, it's a kind of great thing in your life. It's just what you have. But the craft of being able to tell a good story and to tell a long story, that is something else entirely. Now, you mentioned that, you, you know, you went through a journey of sort of studying the craft and also structure and so on like that. What were some of the things that you picked up that were that you found to be super helpful for you eventually in your career as writing um, novels, you know, bigger stories than the short fiction that you had started with? Well, I think that, you know, the big difference between a novel and some for me and something like a poem or a short story is that a poem and a short story, you can really wing your way through it. You know, if you've got an image, if you've got some basic idea of structure, like a, a braid, you can braid your narrative and you'll wind up with a nice, beautiful 20 page short story. You cannot do that with a novel. I can't. I mean, mm -hmm. there are people who clearly can, but I really can't. There's just too many moving pieces. Yeah. And I've just had the experience of writing myself into like a dead end and not having any idea how to get out of it and so on and so on. So I think the further I've gone along in my career, the more I've planned. And I know, Stephen, I've read your craft books, which are incredibly brilliant. <laughs> I know you're not so much of a planner. I mean, I think you have a great, you know, you have a great grasp of structure, but you're not so much of an outliner or so on. But I really kind of am. I'm not yeah. an outliner in the sense that I cannot sit down and have an outline of a book and write an outline of a book. I can't do that. Yeah. But what I do do um, at this point in my career is I think a long time before I start writing, I mm. think about the character ensemble. I think about 
the world I want the book to be in. I think about the themes of the book. I think about cool twists in the book that I want. I think about how to create the best character to meet the ideal structure. Hmm. So that it'll be kind of like a clash of titans, you know, between my character and my story and um, and all of this. So I will have a rough outline by the time I start writing of, mm. let's say, the main points in a narrative. Yeah, no, that's that is very interesting. Everyone has like a different approach. You know, some people um, do very detailed outlines. Some I like how you think through. Uh, one of the things you mentioned was very interesting, I think, just now, and that was the idea of the the character kind of clashing with the structure. Tell me more about that. I'm very interested in what that all encompasses. What does that mean for you? Well, I think that, you know, your um, story has to be the perfect storm for your character. Oh, okay, yeah. So, you know, before I start, a book, you know, I really I have all these balls in the air and it's the worst because nothing is set in stone. <laughs> so, you know, the character can change, the story can change, the world can change, the themes can change. And so you're like just trying to figure out like what mix of all of this stuff you want or you need. Of course, if you hear a character in your head and you suddenly have a great character, I mean, that's wonderful. Then you can design the story for your character. But of course, the interaction of character and story is never random. So, for example, in The Leftover Women, my latest novel, which is um, a story about what happens when a young woman in China finds out that her baby had not died at birth, as she had been told, but had been placed for adoption by her no-good husband to a wealthy American couple. And she decides that enough is enough. And when the book opens, she has followed her daughter to New York City to try to get her back. Hmm. And the novel is told from two points of view, from the birth mother, Jasmine's point of view, and from the adoptive mother, Rebecca's point of view. And the birth mother, Jasmine, is a beautiful woman who has been commoditized and used for her mm. beauty and who was almost sold at a really young age to this awful guy she married um, and really oppressed because of the way she looked. So mm. I had to design the perfect story for Jasmine to clash with her that would you know, kind of force her to into a corner and to kind of come out fighting. And so I didn't have her come to New York and get an easy job, you know, in a yeah. restaurant. I have every single job alternative basically failing for her. She's undocumented. She's no money. Her back's up against the wall. She's desperate to be reunited with her daughter. And her only way out is an offer to be a cocktail waitress at a strip club. Hmm. And she has to decide, am I going to actually weaponize myself and hmm. use the way I look, or am I going to run and hide? Um, and, you know, th that's, you know, it's, I'm interrogating the idea of beauty and appearance. Um, and that, of course, had to be the story for her that she, you know, had to go through fire before she got to the end of the book. I love that. I mean, I love the way that you do that, because I feel like um, I've never really heard anyone sort of talk in those exact terms about you know constructing the story to clash or whatever with the character and stuff but but i think that's beautiful and 
I think the best stories for me that happens, whether or not the author has set out to make that happen, that your character gets that part, that moment. I sometimes call it the point at which all seems lost. Like I like to write my character to the moment at which all seems lost. And I really want readers of my books to be like, how are they literally going to get out? Like, I have no idea. And so the the story does, um, you know, is affected by the character as far as what are their goals, their needs, and then um, to get to those moments. And, um, and I think that what's your, what's your view about um, choices? Like when, in other words, when your character faces a difficult choice, do you think that that reveals who the character is, or do you feel like it changes who the character is? Well, I mean, I, I think both, right? Yeah. I think the difficult choices make them reveal character. There's nothing that reveals character more than, you know, needing to make a really difficult choice. Yeah. But those choices are also how your character develops over the course of the novel. And I like what you said about, you know, almost kind of getting your characters into this impossible dilemma. <laughs> and I, I, I think about that as well. And in The Leftover Woman, you know, we have Jasmine, who's the birth mother. But you have Rebecca, who has is a wealthy publishing executive with a higher powered career, you know, a handsome husband, a beautiful home and an adopted Chinese daughter she adores. And so... When I started writing the book, I actually had an early reader say to me, you should make Rebecca into the villain in this book. And then it'll be a very clear emotional, you know, trip for your reader because we can root against Rebecca. And then we ultimately want to see if Jasmine gets the child or not. I said, no, actually, I don't want to do that. Yeah. I don't, because I also love Rebecca. And I yeah. think Rebecca also has a right to the child. So I set up this impossible dilemma in the book because I'm hoping to make actually the reader love both mothers and to be rooting for both mothers at alternate times, even though they both make mistakes. So in the end, I've set up this impossible dilemma for myself because <laughs> who gets the kid, you know, and it, the author has to figure it out. The author has to find a way through this, you know, dark moment that we have set up for ourselves um, and somehow solve this seemingly impossible problem. And I don't know if you've ever had that, where sometimes you've done such a great job <laughs> making it impossible that you're like, ah, I don't know how we're going to do this. <laughs> we're stuck. <laughs> well, um, I love to try to do that to myself, to actually, what, where I don't know what's going to happen. And it has happened sometimes where I literally am in that spot. Um, but when you were talk, I've never had a story, I don't think, with like two sort of two protagonists like you do in The Leftover Woman. And so it made me think of this um, story called The House of Sand and Fog that I saw the movie a number of years ago, but it's about this um, this young woman and this Iranian family, and they both are trying to live in this house, literally. Like, the woman loses the house because of basically the system doesn't record that she had made a house payment or something. Anyway, so this other family purchases the house. Well, she's trying to get it back. And you like them both. Like, you like this family. You're like, well, I want the family. But you're like, but I want the woman to have the house. Like, but they can't both. And so it's a very moving and tragic story. But... um 
But anytime that we can do that, I feel like as storytellers where you can make us root for both, that is amazing. Because then there's that tension. Well, I like Rebecca and I like, I want, but I, what? So yeah, that's brilliant. Um, I used to teach people that like, if you can create that, that every character should have a primary sort of unmet desire. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think if you can find a way to have mutually exclusive desires where, where that clash comes from not just one person wanting something, but someone else, they can't both get it. And then that creates wonderful tension for stories. I think you're absolutely right. Um, so what are some of the things that you've learned uh, over your career of writing sort of in the trenches about storytelling. Um, now, I know that you studied it. I'm just curious if like actually doing it, putting pen to paper, fingers to the keyboard, whatever, has taught you things that maybe you just were never either taught or maybe you learned a different approach than you first had thought you were going to pursue. Oh, for sure. I mean, I don't really know... Um... I don't know if writing programs or MFAs teach you that much about writing novels. Mm. I mean, they teach you yeah. a lot, but they it's very voice-centered. You mm. know, it's very like how to avoid cliche and it's all about metaphor and all of these things, which is, which are beautiful, which I really needed to learn. But I didn't learn very much about actual plotting mm. when I was in school. I had to learn it all in the trenches, like you yeah. said, yeah. And which is why it took me a really long time to write my debut novel, Girl in Translation, because I just didn't have the apparatus mm. to um, figure out how to do it. And what was interesting was that you know, there was another writer who was in my MFA program who published her book first. And her novel had snippets that I recognized because I had seen them in workshop. And the beautiful writer, beautiful story. But they had always felt like little snippets. Like it wasn't a book, you know, it was like scenes. It was like almost disconnected scenes from that were beautifully written and very deep in character. But it wasn't a novel. I mean, it wasn't going anywhere. You know, it was just like different parts of a life and I read the book that was published and I was like oh I see how she made it into a novel what she did was she inserted a death at the end and Mm. because she killed off one of the characters near the end of the book everything changed you know she had to make all of those snippets form a narrative that would make that death earned in, you know, instead of oh, it kind wow. of hand yeah. happening at random. And so I think that was a valuable lesson to me was that if you have an, you know, a really a book worthy event happening, let's say at the 75% point of your book, then it creates this kind of gravitational force that aligns all of your scenes towards that event because you've got to make it happen. Like if you know there's going to be a murder, you have to set it up so that the murder happens. You know, that, <laughs> like we, we get to the point where someone loses their mind enough or is, executes this premeditated murder or whatever, and then covers up or gets arrested. But like you have to 
get to that point. If they go to suicide, they have to be driven to suicide, you know, for example. So um, that was one of the first plotting lessons I learned. That's interesting. It brings up this idea of a trajectory to me, um, that a character is on a trajectory that um, relationships can sometimes be on a trajectory. And sometimes interesting twists can come when we think we know the trajectory, but it actually pivots into a different place than we had thought. Um, I always love stories where that happens, where I'm like, okay, I I know what they're doing here. I know where this is going. All of a sudden you're like, no, wait, what? Those are, <laughs> that's so much fun for me when I read a book like that, that. That is the best. And it is the worst, really, when you know what's going to happen and then it happens. Even yeah. if it happens in a really good way, mm-hmm. somehow a part of you is still disappointed that it went along in such a predictable way. So no, I totally agree. And I think that, you know, I mean, I have the greatest respect for people who can really outline so brilliantly and much execute the outline. I mean, I'm not able to do that either. I do a lot of plotting, but I have to say most of my outlining I do after I've written. So what I do is Uh like, I'll have a very general idea not very general, fair, you know, I'll have the main plot points of a book um, and I'll know who the characters are. I'll develop the character ensemble. And then what I need to do is I need to write the first couple of chapters. That takes me a pretty long time. And the first couple of chapters are kind of my touchstone for the book. You know, they give me a lot of information that I didn't have before I wrote them. Because then by the time that's through, I know how they sound. I know how they feel. Mm. I know the voice. I just, I know the world. I know the characters a lot better than I did before I wrote like the first, let's say, three chapters. And then what I do is I go back and forth. Like I try to move towards, you know, whatever is going to happen in my book next. But I always constantly keep going back and mm-hmm. outlining what I've actually done. Mm-hmm. So I can see what I've done, you know, and well, I can be like, well, that was a really long time on that picnic. That was actually completely <laughs> irrelevant to the plot. You know, <laughs> You're like, yeah, maybe not the best use of our time here, you know, but it, I mean, outlining your own work will show you its mm-hmm. weaknesses and it will show you how many pages you've spent on X, Y, or Z. Um, So I move back and forth between outlining ahead and outlining back. It's almost like I'm in this little outlining window um, as I write. Yeah, that's interesting. I remember one book that I wrote where when you you mentioned like a picnic, oh, it's a long time for a picnic. There was this one scene where there's this woman who has a dog and like it, um, she gets home and the dog's missing. It's not there. And so you're like, well, where's the dog? Whatever. And so you know from a previous book that there's this killer on the loose. And in a previous book, he had actually killed someone and left him in the or left her body in the trunk of this person's car. But you think the same guy's back. You don't know. Anyway, so she comes in the house, can't find her dog, and finally goes to her computer screen and like taps the space bar. And there's a note that comes up that says, check your trunk, Margaret. What? I'm just saying. And then <laughs> I didn't say anything happened to the dog. It's just, but I love your reaction. That's what I wanted readers to think. So terrifying. Like, oh my gosh. And so anyway, and then she 
looks around. She goes out and looks under the car. There's no one there. And then looks in the car in the back seat. There's no one there. But then she's going to open up the trunk. And since I write organically, I was like, what is in the trunk? Like, I didn't know where the dog was. And, and so it's like, but no readers want the dog in the trunk. Like zero readers. So like, so like there is not a single person reading who's like, I literally hope the dog is chopped up in the, tr-. like, it just, it's not gonna happen. So then she, oh, so I always ask myself, well, what's worse than what they expect? So she opens the trunk and there's a DVD back there with a note that says, I hope you enjoy watching this as much as I did filming it. So you still don't know. But anyway, so I have this whole sequence with this dog. But when I was reading it, the story in context, I was like, a lot of this stuff with the dog is maybe interesting, but it doesn't really apply to the story. And I needed to cut a lot of stuff with the dog. I had like a 3000 word, like, search for the dog around the neighborhood and everything and when only when i read it i was like just get on with it like nobody wants to search the whole neighborhood for the dog three thousand words it's like cut that chop that out so um but i'll just let you know the dog is okay i just i'm just letting you know that because you look a little nervous right now and <laughs> i'm I, very worried about this dog <laughs> the dog ended but, up but that's kind of brilliant though i think that is brilliant look in the trunk and then there's the dvd in the trunk yeah what's the name of that that book that one's the bishop um that's one of my patrick bowers novels and and uh it was um a super interesting climax that i think there there's a lot of things going on but but the one thing that i always remembered was this long search that i had to cut out because it's like your picnic you're like Nobody really wants a long search. They just want to find out, like, literally, is the dog okay and like that. So, um, but, um, but yeah, it's, I'm not a dog person. So, like, I'm the one who would be like, you'd be like, Steve, you're actually apt to stick the dog in the trunk. But I didn't. Like, I just want all my listeners to know I wouldn't do that, even though I'm not really the, um, the best dog person. So, um, now, so we've talked a little bit about story and plot and movement like this. Tell me a little bit about characters. Like, do you feel like you create your characters or you discover your characters? This is like some authors, it's one they're like, they're well, this is how you create a compelling character. Others are like, no, I don't feel like I'm making them up at all. I feel like I'm getting to know them and that they somehow already exist. What What is it for you? I'm probably more of a creator. I think that, um, you know, I mean, I do love voice and sometimes you hear the voice of a character and that's a gift, but I, I think a lot about theme and story when I'm writing and I, of course, my books are character driven, so the characters are incredibly important, but I need to know what type of character I need for the story. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had with the leftover women, uh, my most recent novel, I, I had the idea about these two women and the one child and the woman coming to try to get her baby back and the birth mother and the adoptive mother with the one child policy in China. That's why mm. her husband had given the mm. baby away because they were only allowed one child and he wanted a boy and it was a girl. So 
all I knew that, and then I needed to populate the story with the right characters, with mm. the right birth mother, and with the right adoptive mother. Um, and actually, the book is also kind of an insider's look at publishing because Rebecca is a editorial director and we <laughs> see her like in auctions and you know fighting for a top author and things like that so kind of behind the scenes look at publishing which I thought was really fun to write but you know it's like I know what type of character I need for my story and then I you know fit the story to the character yeah. but then of course the character comes to life at a certain point. And I know that in this book, I wanted to set up, you know, I wanted to put one of my characters in bed with somebody else. And we got to the moment, you know, I'm building it up where they're going to actually sleep together. And she was just like, no way. Like I'm doing hip. I was like, ah! <laughs> I thought, no, she would, she's right. Like she would never go for him. She's not going to go for him. So I had to like replot to you know have something else exciting happen um <laughs> I love that. There. she's yeah. like no i'm literally not getting in bed with him and you're like oh come on no exactly. she's like i will not do that it's not right i won't so you're like oh. you've developed a certain point but that you know part of the story that she was just not going to do it so yeah there you go i've had characters that I wanted to do something or I thought we're going to do something. And then as I'm writing it, no, no, they yeah. don't want to do that. Or they tell me that. And people who are not writers listen to us right now. And they're like, what are you guys even talking about? <laughs> like, <Shut up. laughs> like, what do you even mean? Like your character wouldn't do what you told it to do. No. it was. <laughs> well, you know, I kind of think so. I'm very careful about that. Cause I feel like that's one of the things that I hate the most as an avid reader mm. is that when you read a book and you can feel when the character has like the whip to the back and is forced to do something that he or she would never do. Mm. And I think an astute reader feels that and it's yeah. absolutely offended. That's one of those like throw the book across the room moments. Yeah. And I really, really do hope that none of my readers ever have that. So I am sensitive to it. Like I, of course I try to, create a character that's going to go along the lines of my story and not run amok. But, you know, with some of the directions and some of the plot points, I'm really careful that, you know, they're not being too stupid to live, right? <laughs> that's kind of like the worst thing where you're like, no, you know, you're just kind of serving the author's point, purpose. Um, and that's when you kind of break the spell that the fiction has on you. I sometimes tell people, you know, it's kind of like we have a leash around the neck of the character and we're kind of pulling them, leading them wherever we want to go to the next plot point or whatever. And I always tell people, cut the leash and then let your character act without restraint. It's the only way that they'll feel honest, believable. And so, you know, people will say like, how do you write a serial killer or whatever? And like, I just cut the leash. And then, so, you know, yeah. So I'm curious, like, when you sit down to write a scene, do you have no idea what's going to happen? I, sometimes I don't know how the scene will end. Most of the time, I have an idea just based on understanding of story, like, you know, possibilities. But I also am really cognizant of the fact that people don't want things to be too predictable. 
So like, as I'm writing a scene, if I think, oh, this is exactly what everyone would expect, then I won't do that. Um, Cause I do feel like when we start a book, there's sort of a question that we're, we're saying in our minds, even though we might not actually say it out loud. And that is how will I be surprised? And if we don't respect that desire of our readers, I feel like we're going to let them down. So I'm, I'm asking the same question myself as a writer. How will I be surprised in this scene? And if nothing about the scene or the storyline really brings me anything surprising, then it probably won't to readers. And I know I need to still probably work on it. Wow. Yeah. 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 So for me, I mean, I discover the story as I move along and sometimes like I won't know exactly the end of a story until the very end. The closest I ever came was I was going to send the book in at one o'clock in the afternoon and at 10 in the morning, I finally figured out how it ended. And I was so happy because I was like, golly, I wasn't sure. Well, I thought I knew maybe, but I finally three hours before I sent it in, but I've been working on it for over a year, you know, and, and then I kind of thought I knew, but I was wrong. So, but I finally found out at the end, the last day though, that was good. That would stress me out so much, <laughs> even though I pretty much have a roadmap of my, yeah. of the larger lines of my book from beginning to end. I am still so stressed when writing sometimes, just because you don't know everything. There's no yeah. way you can know yeah. everything. You start to write a scene and maybe let's say, you know, you know, they're going to have a conflict. You don't know the nature of the conflict. Yeah. You don't know exactly what they're going to say. You're going to, and I find that to be really intimidating sometimes. Mm. I mean, of course it's freeing too, but you know, you're like, oh, the only thing coming up in my mind are incredible cliches. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Stereotype after stereotype. Yes, that's a win. Uh, oh my God. Why is nothing original coming? You know, the, you don't ever have that. Oh, uh, a lot of times I just discard my first few ideas alike because just like you said, a lot of times you're writing something and a cliche will come to mind or or a traditional thing or stereotypical thing. So I'm like, okay, I want to discard that because I don't want it to feel that way. Um, so I'm always shooting for moments and I've tried to have a moment in every scene where, where I call it the pivot. So pivot is really where it's unexpected yet inevitable both. So if, if you don't have a pivot, everything will either be too predictable because everything will make sense in a way that you're like, I exactly know where this is going. Or you'll have events that occur that aren't believable. You'll just have everything going on. All of a sudden, something outlandish occurs. And we're, as readers, we're like, where did that come from? Like, that makes no sense. I don't even understand why that's happening. So I'm always, as I write personally, looking for pivots in every scene. Moments that will satisfy us, but also surprise us as we come to them. Um that's the goal, at least for me. I I love that. I think that's so smart. Um, and yeah. it's kind of what I I've always thought about endings. You know, yeah. I, I you know some people find it really hard to start a book. Some people find it really hard to end a book. For me, the ending is usually the easiest part because I don't feel like I have a book until I've got the ending. Okay, and yeah. the ending 
yeah, you know, when I start, it's I, I've got the ending. Like I know the twist at the ending. And, you know, the trick for me in the ending is exactly what you said. It's always to create an ending that is both inevitable and surprising, yes. you know, so that people are like, oh, I didn't see that coming. But they can be like, oh, the whole trail had been <laughs> laid like all along. But I, I love the idea of doing that in every single scene. I mean, I think it's very hard to do. But uh, there was a book recently I was reading and it was like, I got to about 190 pages in, and I finally just stopped because nothing had surprised me so far. Yeah. Like I was reading yeah. novels by a very famous um, author, and everyone is talking about them. I was reading, and I'm just like, nothing surprises me. Then, I yeah, I just finally stopped with that. I just really like that. Now, it can't be a surprise where it's just so ludicrous that it makes no sense. That's not right either, so... Um, well, okay. So this very interesting. Now let's just mention, now I mentioned your books, some of your books in the, um, um, opening did the leftover woman searching for Sylvie Lee girl in translation in Mambo in Chinatown. Now, would you say, which would you say is the one that readers, if they're not familiar with your work should start with, is it the most recent book or your first book? Where would you direct people who have like, listen to the conversation they're like i really want to read one of her books which one would you say would be the best one to start with well i would recommend the leftover woman or maybe searching for sylvie lee because they are my most recent books uh -huh. um and they are the most thriller mystery like books they are the most intricately plotted books um of um you know family drama with twists and turns yeah. and hopefully a kind of Thrilling read, although, you know, a lot of people also read my debut novel, Girl in Translation, because that's the one that's really taught in a lot of schools across America. And that is a, a that's a coming of age novel, very yeah. much based on my own life. But yeah, I I mean, I would start with The Leftover Woman. I think that's kind of my, you know, most fun book to date. Well, I would definitely encourage our readers to check that story out. And um, is there a place online where you'd like to direct people if they want to find out more about your books, new books, book signings, anything like that? Sure. I mean, jeanquok.com is where I live, you know, so that's my website. Um, and from there, you have, you know, you can connect to my Instagram, Twitter, or X, whatever it's called now, <laughs> Facebook, Threads, and I'm even on TikTok now. Um, so social media, and of course, you know, readers can always sign up for my newsletter. It's on the last so the contact page of my website, and um, I try to really send out um, information about where I am and what I'll be doing in the coming time. But I have to say, it's hard to keep up with it when I'm under contract for another book. So I'm writing a lot right now, and it's my website hasn't been updated yet with my tour schedule, with what I'm doing, you know, my events that I'm doing this year. Um, and, you know, I think nobody's going to know where to find me. Like, I need to do this, but then I also need to get this manuscript done. So you're kind of always juggling these balls. But yeah, but jeanquok.com, K-W-O-K, is um, where you can find most of the information about me. That's fantastic. So before we close up, a couple of quick questions. So first of all, I would say, I've been asking these questions for the last year or so, and I just find them very fascinating. And I know they're not fair. They're not gotcha questions, though, but they're not fair either. So like, the first one is, what's one novel besides yours 
that everyone should read before they die. I know you're probably before like, they die. Well, before I know, they die. I don't mean it to be so grim. I guess it's just a way of recommending one of your favorite novels. Yeah, I, th- I think that's actually a really good question. I love, well, I mean, I just have to say a novel that I really love is The Blind Assassin by Margaret Atwood. And I think it's just a modern classic. It's a real combination of literary and thriller and science fiction. Um, And she's a brilliant writer who intertwines these storylines. And it's also kind of about, you know, death and family and appearances. So I think that's a very beautiful book. Wow. Great. No, that's good. I just wrote it down. I'll have to check it out. I have such great recommendations I've gotten from people in the last few months from asking the question. And the so the second question is, what is one thing you wish you could tell your younger self back maybe when you were a teenager? I think I would tell her that, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of failure in your life and it's going to be okay. <laughs> And I was really one of those perfectionistic kids who had not failed very much by the time I went to college. And, you know, as I kind of grew up and became a writer, I learned that the biggest piece of success is learning how to fail and that the only way to be truly successful is to fail again and again and again. And, you know, when I was 18, it was like, if I failed anything, I was like, I felt like I had to kill myself, you know, Mm. like didn't deserve to live. And that perfectionism maybe is good in some ways, but in many ways, I think is very, very harmful. Um, If I look around and I see who's successful, you know, it's not even so much a measure of talent. It's very often a measure of resilience Mm. and the ability to be rejected to fail in getting something you wanted and then to get up again and to keep trying. That is great advice to close with, not just for the younger you, but I think for all of us, wherever we might be today. So Jean, thank you so much for the time that you took to share with me today. I know you're very busy with your writing deadlines and I really appreciate the the chance to chat. I loved chatting with you, Steve. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks to everyone for listening. You can check out our other guests and other interviews wherever you listen to your podcasts, or you can click to thestoryblender.com for more information about each one of our guests. Don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts. Tell your stories well, my friends, and always remember. The art of the story is all in the blend. Take care, everyone and keep the stories coming.